Welcome to episode three of The Veil of Cedars. Once again, my name is Zev Horwich, and I will be your narrator and host for this episode. The third chapter of this book is quite different than the first before it. Instead of continuing the story of Mary and Arthur, this chapter goes on a tangent into the history of the Spanish crown, and more importantly, the Spanish Inquisition. We do know that Grace Aguilar was quite the scholar and an extremely educated woman. However, I do not know the veracity of all the facts in this chapter, especially considering that all of these facts are from the best knowledge of the 19th century. I don't know what changes to the scholarship have been made in the last two centuries since that. So take it all with a tiny grain of salt. A few quick things to clear up in this chapter. Uh, there is a historical figure who is from a place called Vienna. This Vienna, however, is not the one in Austria. This Vienna is spelled V-I-L-L-E-N-A. Also, because this week's chapter is just a history lesson, there's going to be a very, very, very short post-show afterwards discussing it. But please feel free to stick around for it and hope you enjoy. Thanks. Chapter 3 Now history unfolds her ample page, rich with the spoils of time. Clearly to comprehend the internal condition of Spain at the period of our narrative, 1479, a condition which, though apparently purely national, had influence over every domestic hearth, it is necessary to glance back a few years. The various petty sovereignties into which Spain had been divided never permitted any lengthened period of peace. But these had at length merged into two great kingdoms, under the names of Aragon and Castile. The form of both governments was monarchical, but the genius of the former was purely republican, and the power of the sovereign, so circumscribed by the junta, the justicia, and the holy brotherhood, that the vices or follies of the monarch were of less consequence in a national point of view in Aragon than in any other kingdom. It was not so with Castile. From the death of Henry III in 1404, a series of foreign and civil disasters had plunged the kingdom into a state of anarchy and misery. John II had some virtues as an individual, but none as a king. And his son Henry, who succeeded him in 1450, had neither the one nor the other. Governed as his father had been, entirely by favorites, the discontent of all classes of his subjects rapidly increased. The people were disgusted and furious at the extravagance of the monarch's minion. The nobles fired at his insolence, and an utter contempt of the king increased the virulence of the popular ferment. Unmindful of the disgrace attendant on his divorce from Blanche of Navarre, Henry sought and obtained the hand of Joanna, Princess of Portugal, whose ambition and unprincipled intrigues heightened the ill favor with which he was already regarded. The court of Castile, once so famous for chastity and honor, sank to the lowest ebb of infamy, the shadow of which seeming to extend over the whole land 
affected nobles and people with its baleful influence. All law was at an end. The people, even while they murmured against the king, followed his evil example. And history shrinks from the scenes of debauchery and licentiousness, robbery and murder, which desecrated the land. But this state of things did not last long, while there still remained some noble hearts among the Castilians. Five years after their marriage, the queen was said to have given birth to a daughter, who Henry declared should be his successor, in lieu of his young brother Alfonso, John's son by a second wife, Isabella of Portugal. This child the nobles refused to receive, believing and declaring that she was not Henry's daughter, and arrogated to themselves the right of trying and passing sentence on their sovereign, who by his weak, flagitious conduct had, they unanimously declared, forfeited all right even to the present possession of the crown. The confederates, who were the very highest and noblest officers of the realm, assembled at Evita, and with a solemnity and pomp which gave the whole ceremony an imposing character of reality, dethroned King Henry in effigy, and proclaimed the youthful Alfonso sovereign in his stead. All present swore fealty, but no actual good followed. The flame of civil discord was relighted, and raged with yet greater fury, continuing even after the sudden and mysterious death of the young prince, whose extraordinary talent, amiability, and firmness, though only fourteen, gave rise to the rumor that he had actually been put to death by his own party, who beheld in his rising genius the utter destruction of their own turbulence and pride. Be this as it may, his death occasioned no cessation of hostilities. The confederates carrying on the war in the name of his sister, the Infanta Isabella. Her youth and sex had pointed her out as one not likely to interfere or check the projects of popular ambition, and therefore the very fittest to bring forward as an excuse for their revolt. With every appearance of humility and deference, they offered her the crown, but the proudest and boldest shrank back abashed before the flashing eye and proud majesty of demeanor with which she answered. The crown is not yours to bestow. It is held by Henry according to the laws alike of God and man, and till his death you have no right to bestow it nor I to receive it. But though firm in this resolution, Isabella did not refuse to coincide in their plans for securing her succession. To this measure, Henry himself consented, thus appearing tacitly to acknowledge the truth of the reports that Joanna was a surreptitious child, and for a brief period, Castile was delivered from the horrors of war. Once declared heiress of Castile and Leon, Isabella's hand was sought by many noble suitors, and her choice fell on Ferdinand, the young king of Sicily, and heir apparent to the crown of Aragon. Love was Isabella's incentive. Prudence and a true patriotic ambition urged the Archbishop of Toledo not only to ratify the choice, but to smooth every difficulty in their way. He saw at once the glory which might accrue to Spain by this peaceful union of two rival thrones. 
every possible and impossible obstacle was privately thrown by Henry to prevent this union. Even while he gave publicly his consent, his prejudice against Ferdinand being immovable and deadly. But the maneuvers of the archbishop were more skillful than those of the king. The royal lovers, for such they really were, were secretly united at Valladolid, to reach which place in safety Ferdinand had been compelled to travel in disguise, and attended by only four cavaliers. And at that period, so straightened were the circumstances of the prince and princess, who afterwards possessed the boundless treasures of the new world, that they were actually compelled to borrow money to defray the expenses of their wedding. The moment Henry became aware of this marriage, the civil struggle recommenced. In vain, the firm yet pacific Archbishop of Toledo recalled the consent he had given and proved that the union not only secured the afterglory of Spain, but Henry's present undisturbed possession of his throne. Urged on by his wife and his intriguing favorite the Marquis of Vienna, who was forever changing sides, Henry published a manifesto in which he declared on oath that he believed Joanna to be his daughter and proclaimed her heiress of Castile. Ferdinand and Isabella instantly raised an army, regardless of the forces of Portugal, to whose monarch Joanna had been betrothed, who were rapidly advancing to the assistance of Henry. Ere, however, war had regularly commenced, a brief respite was obtained by the death of Henry, and instantly, and unanimously, Isabella was proclaimed Queen of Leon and Castile. Peace, however, was not instantly regained. The King of Portugal married Joanna, and resolved on defending her rights. Some skirmishing took place, and at length, a long-sustained conflict near Ferro decided the point. Ferdinand and the Castilians were victorious. The King of Portugal made an honorable retreat to his frontiers, and the Marquis of Vienna, the head of the malcontents, and by many supposed to be the real father of Joanna, submitted to Isabella. Peace thus dawned for Castile, but it was not till three years afterwards when Ferdinand had triumphed over the enemies of Aragon and succeeded his father as sovereign of that kingdom that any vigorous measures could be taken for the restoration of internal order. The petty sovereignties of the peninsula, with the sole exception of the mountainous district of Navarre and the Moorish territories in the south, were now all united. It was the sagacious ambition of Ferdinand and Isabella to render Spain as important in the scale of kingdoms as any other European territory, and to do this they knew demanded as firm a control over their own subjects as the subjection of still harassing foes. Above a century had elapsed since Spain had been exposed to the sway of weak or evil kings, and all the consequent miseries of misrule and war. Rapine, outrage, and murder had become so frequent and unchecked as frequently to interrupt commerce by preventing all communication between one place and another. The people acknowledged no law but their own passions. The nobles were so engrossed with hatred of each other and universal contempt of their late sovereign with personal ambition and general discontent that they had little time or leisure to attend to any but their own interest. 
but a very brief interval convinced both nobles and people that a new era was dawning for them. In that short period of 18 months, the wise administration of Isabella and Ferdinand had effected a sufficient change to startle all ranks into the conviction that their best interests lay in prompt obedience, and in exerting themselves in their several spheres to second the sovereign's will. The chivalric qualities of Ferdinand, his undoubted wisdom, and unwavering firmness excited both love and fear. While devotion itself was not too strong a term to express, the national feeling entertained towards Isabella. Her sweet, womanly gentleness blended as it was with the dignity of the sovereign. Her ready sympathy in all that concerns her people, for the lowest of her subjects, doing justice even if it were the proud noble who injured and the serf that suffered, all was so strange yet fraught with such national repose that her influence every year increased while every emotion of chivalry found exercise and yet rest in the heart of the aristocracy for their queen. Her simple word would be obeyed on the instant by men who would have paused, weighed, and reasoned if any other, even Ferdinand himself, had spoken. Isabella knew her power, and if ever sovereign used it for the good, the happiness of her people, that proud glory was her own. In spite of the miserable condition of the people during the civil struggles, the wealth of Spain had not decreased. It was protected and increased by a class of people whose low and despised estate was, probably, their safeguard. These were the Jews, who for many centuries had, both publicly and secretly, resided in Spain. There were many classes of this people in the land, scattered alike over Castile, Leon, Aragon, Navarre, and also in the Moorish territories. Some there were confined to the mystic learning and profound studies of the schools, whence they sent many deeply learned men to other countries, where their worth and wisdom gained them yet greater regard than they received in Spain. Others there were low and degraded in outward seeming yet literally holding and guiding the financial and commercial interests of the kingdom, whose position was of the lowest, scorned and hated by the very people who yet employed them, and exposed to insult from every class. The third, and by far largest, body of Spanish Jews were those who, Israelites in secret, were so completely Catholic in seeming that the court, the camp, the council, even the monasteries themselves counted them amongst them. And this had been the case for years, we should say centuries, and yet so inviolable was the faith pledged to each other, so awful the dangers around them were even suspicion excited that the fatal secret never transpired. Offices of state as well as distinctions of honor were frequently conferred on men who had their faith or race been suspected would have been regarded as the scum of the earth and sentenced to torture and death for daring to pass what they were not. At the period of which we write, the fatal enemy of the secret Jew of modern times, known as the Holy Office, did not exist. But a secret and terrible tribunal there was, whose power and extent were unknown even to the sovereigns of the land. 
The Inquisition is generally supposed to have been founded by Ferdinand and Isabella about the year 1480 or 1482. But a deeper research informs us that it had been introduced into Spain several centuries earlier and obtained great influence in Aragon. Confiding in the protection of the Papal See, the Inquisitors set no bounds to their ferocity. Secret informations, imprisonments, tortures, midnight assassinations marked their proceedings. But they overreached themselves. All Spain, setting aside petty rivalships, rose up against them. All who should give them encouragement or assistance were declared traitors to their country. The very lives of the Inquisitors and their families were, in the first burst of fury, endangered. But after a time, imagining they had sunk into harmless insignificance, their oppressors desisted in their efforts against them, and were guilty of the unpardonable error of not exterminating them entirely. According to the popular belief, the dreaded tribunal slept, and so soundly they fear not, imagined not its awakening. They little knew that its subterranean halls were established near almost all the principal cities, and that its engines were often at work even in the palaces of kings. Many a family wept the loss of a beloved member. They knew not, guessed not how, for those who once entered those fatal walls were never permitted to depart. So secret were their measures that even the existence of this fearful mockery of justice and religion was not known, or at the time it would have been wholly eradicated. Superstition had not then gained the ascendancy which, in after years, so tarnished the glory of Spain and opened the wide gates to the ruin and debasement under which she labors now. The fierce wars and revolutions ravaging the land had given too many and too favorable opportunities for the exercise of the secret power. But still, regard for their own safety prevented the more public display of their office as ambition prompted. The vigorous proceedings of Ferdinand and Isabella rendered them yet more wary and little did the sovereigns suspect that in their very courts, this fatal power held sway. The existence of this tribunal naturally increased the dangers environing the Israelites who were daring enough to live amongst the Catholics as one of them. But of this particular danger, they themselves were not generally aware, and their extraordinary skill in the concealment of their faith, to every item of which they yet adhered, baffled except in a very few instances, even these ministers of darkness. Welcome to the Post Show for Chapter 3. I hope you enjoyed the historical lesson from this chapter, I know that I found it quite fascinating. Not just the facts and learning about the history of the Spanish crown, but the editorial aspect of it, because this isn't a history. This is a novel. And so Grace Aguilar doesn't have to write 
in the usual dry and balanced tones of the historian. Instead, she writes what she's feeling, and it's full of her own inclinations and prejudices and all the feelings and thoughts that she has about the subject matter that is very clearly near and dear to her. First of all, there is the matter of the crown of Spain. And she clearly does not think very highly of many of the kings of Spain, though Ferdinand she does have a soft spot for. But really, Isabella is... She seems like a hero to Grace Aguilar. And that wasn't something I was expecting considering Ferdinand and Isabella's role in the Spanish Inquisition. Aguilar makes a lot of apologies for most of the Christians of Spain. This is most apparent in her discussion of the earliest inquisitions, the medieval inquisitions. Now, these really did happen. This is a corroborated fact. In a paper by Yermiahu Yovel, he talks about the earliest inquisitions in the 13th century. Now, there's not a lot of evidence that I or my research assistant were able to uncover about her claims of the Inquisition being violently thrown out, and there's not a lot of evidence that supports the claims of the building of these secret Inquisition halls that happened in the few hundred years before the, quote, true Inquisition in the 15th century. There's no evidence against it, and again, this is just really preliminary research. But still, Aguilar is painting a narrative of the Holy See duping the Spanish people into this Inquisition, with Isabella and Ferdinand being these paragons of virtue that don't seem to have a large role in it. And Jovel's paper talks a lot about how the Inquisition was, in fact, a tool of Ferdinand and Isabella and how they used it to assert full dominance over Spain, which again, he corroborates what Aguilar was talking about in that Spain was this tumultuous state full of civil war and petty dictators and corrupt kings. So I certainly understand where the pride around Isabella and Ferdinand comes from. Grace Aguilar has every right to be as proud of Spain as any other person of Spanish ancestry. Her family resided in Spain for hundreds, if not a thousand or more years. This is absolutely her heritage as well, and that's something that's often overlooked for the Jews and Moors of Spain. But she has the right to feel pride in her country, even a country that did not allow her ancestors to live freely as themselves. It's a complicated feeling, being both proud and angry at a country. And it's something that I really hope she explores further here. But I also imagine she didn't have a lot of freedom to write everything that she felt, considering how charged England was at the time around its Jewish population and how she's walking this tightrope of trying to get a message out, an important message making sure that it's heard, and still challenging and finding ways to make her readers challenge their own preconceptions while still keeping their attention. So there's this whole 
meta story within this novel of how Grace Aguilar is presenting her Judaism and her own identity as a Spaniard. And it's that, even more than the romance, which captivates me about this book. I feel like I'm learning a lot more about her as a person, and that is what excites me about this. And I can't wait to see what else we learn in chapter four. Thanks for sticking around, and look forward to seeing you then. This podcast was an IEA production. For additional resources, and to learn more about the other podcasts from IEA, go to aeaea.co.